This is one of those stories in the Bible that we all know, or most of us know, we've heard of, and it's like, oh, you know, when Jesus walked on water, or the woman at the well, and we kind of give it these names, but we almost lose what God's trying to do through the story, or we almost forget that, man, that uh, this, this is God's glory. This is his word left to us to reveal himself to us. And I thought about it. I thought, what would it look like to explain the Bible to somebody who's never heard of it or didn't know one single story from it? Just even the New Testament. Like, there's a guy that calls himself the Son of God. There's the guy that walks on water. There's the guy that heals the, the, the sick, raises the dead. Right? He can turn water into wine. They actually kill somebody, and he's raised from the dead himself, and it's all the same dude. Like, like, what's going on with this book, right? It's amazing what God's Word can teach us if we just stop and take it for what it is and try to understand it in its entirety, and it's really, really hard. But the moment we start to downplay it or we get used to it, we're going to miss something. So I just want to encourage you guys with that, and, and the reason I tell you that is I did that with this story today. Uh, I did that with this story in the beginning of the week. I said, oh, man, everyone knows this story. What am I going to teach them? What am I going to be able to share? And so I'm guilty of it myself. But, uh, again, this week I've been reminded that his word is full. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be going to John chapter 5, and we're going to be covering verses 1 through 14. I'll give you a second to turn there. All right, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. We're going to go ahead and read it. This, this chapter has one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And you'll see why. Verse 1. You know, it's the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Uh, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now on that day was the Sabbath. Oh, I'm sorry. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just be here with us today, God. I pray that your presence would renew our spirits, that we would uh, be reminded what your word says about us, God, and what it reveals to us, Father. God, I thank you so much that you have mercy and that you have grace on us. So, God, just let us uh, rest in that mercy today, rest in that grace, and know that, God, as you lead, we want to follow you, Father. 
We want to follow you because you first loved us, God, and, and we are so undeserving of that. So again, Father, we thank you for loving us, and we thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, again, this is a well-known story. A lot of people have read it. A lot of people have overlooked it. A lot of people have gone through it. But before we get into the conversation that this man has with Jesus, I wanted to be able to set the stage a little bit. So John, more than any other author, notes where Jesus is going and where he's coming from. Right, if you guys have seen that, he says he's going to Passover, he's going to Pentecost, or he's going to a feast. And some of the other authors do it a little bit, but John does it in most detail. And this festival is very important to what's going on in this story. So it said that Jesus was going to a feast in, in, into Jerusalem. And the feast that he was going to was a Jewish feast called Purim. Okay, Purim. And, you know, we read the Bible, and read the New Testament, and we see that Jesus has all the types of run-ins with Pharisees and Jewish leaders. And so we would think every time he saw one, he's like, oh, here they go again, right? And maybe he would try to avoid them, but it's not true. He's attending every Jewish festival. He's attending every Jewish feast. And so it shows that not only is he not concerned with running into these people, but he wanted to worship with his people, he wanted to worship and do what he was called to do as a Jewish man. He wanted to be with his own people. So again, this feast is very important. It's the Feast of Purim. And one of the major practices during this feast, kind of like, you know, when we have Christmas, we give gifts to people. They would give gifts to people who were less fortunate than themselves. So that was the main practice for this festival, for this feast was they would go around blessing people who didn't have anything, blessing the poor. Verse 2 says this. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, so this, this pool was covered with big, five big overhangs for shade, right? And the name of the pool is the House of Mercy. All right, so think about this. Think about where we're at. It's the day that they're celebrating and that they're going and actively looking to bless people who are less fortunate. Then we're in a place called the House of Mercy. All right? And so you can kind of see the stage being set for what Jesus is going to do. Now, this place is nasty. Okay, think about this. Paralyzed, blind, and lame. All right, if you're paralyzed, does anyone... I, I've had a, uh, had a grandfather who was paralyzed from the neck down. Went in to remove a tumor on the side of his neck, got a spinal cord, and he was paralyzed. Uh, for, I, th I think it was like 18 years, 18 or 19 years. And so I know that my grandfather was completely dependent on people. And so being a paralyzed man, think about it. You have to use the restroom. What option do you have? Your trash, what option do you have? You're completely dependent on those to help you out. So that he was paralyzed for 38 years. So that means for 38 years, he was receiving handouts. Couldn't, couldn't defend for himself, couldn't provide for himself. So you take that situation and you multiply it by hundreds and hundreds of people. Okay, this isn't the resort pool that you and I are used to, right? This isn't uh, the all-inclusive Rio suite. This is a pool full of people who have lost hope. Again, it's a dirty, unsanitary place to people who are at the end of their rope waiting for a healing. 
They're dealing with terrible issues that have plagued them most of their lives, and they are waiting for something to happen. I mean, it's a depressing place, right? I would imagine that their spirits are pretty low. Right? It's, not like, it's not like cheers or anything. You know, when you walk in, everyone knows your name. They don't care about your name. They're worried about themselves, right? It would have been packed with hundreds of people, especially during this time where they know a handout is coming, where they know help is on the way. And this is the scene that Jesus is about to walk into. All right, now my favorite verse. Verse 4. It's not in there. Anybody see that? Look at your Bible. It's gone. See, you guys weren't reading when I was reading. Verse 4 isn't in there. Yeah, I got a funny story about this verse. Look, I'm serious. If you guys don't believe me, look at your Bibles. So I worked at a Christian clothing store. And we would always have people come in and, like, try to debunk our faith or make us feel stupid for believing in what we believed in. And I was feeling pretty good because I had knocked a couple of them out of the park, right? Guys would come in. I'm like, I'll oh, get out of here, right? And so I was, like, on my high horse all excited. And this really well-groomed man comes in. And I'm thinking, okay, he's a Christian. Um, <laughs> and uh, he comes up to me and he says, Jesus, huh? I'm like, yeah, of course. He's like, well, do you believe that God's perfect? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, do you believe his word is perfect? I'm like, well, I'm wearing it, so yeah. And he said, oh, okay, well, read John chapter 5, verse 4. So I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I go to my Bible, and it was like one of those Wild West showdowns, right? And I'm looking for it, and I'm like, one, two, three, five. One, two, three, five. And, like, I had one of those Twilight Zone moments where I was like, what the heck did I buy into, right? Like, who in the heck tricked me into believing in this Jesus, right? And luckily, it was at the end of my shift, so I was able to go in the back and kind of just sit there. And I think every, like, my boss came in, and I'm looking at him like, what the heck is going on? And the guy said to me right after I read it and found out that it wasn't in my Bible, he said, if your God's perfect, why would he have to skip a verse, like, I don't know. <laughs> Go home. Um, so I was literally, I know it's, a, it's kind of a stupid thing, but I went back to my youth pastor at the time. I, I was just a youth leader, and I said, I said, what have you been telling me all these years? What's going on? Like, you've been lying to me. And he's like, figure it out. I'm like, okay. So basically, you don't know. He's like, no, so figure it out. And uh, it's really, really amazing. What I thought debunked the Bible or kind of made it not uh, relevant actually gives it a little bit more relevancy. So the Bible, and again, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but the Bible has been translated from manuscripts that are very, very old and very, very authentic. And in the manuscript that this Bible was translated from, it's actually noted as a footnote. And so to keep its authenticity, it skipped it. It skipped it, and it was added, it was added to strengthen the point that we would read in verse 7. And so instead of adding something, that was not there to begin with. In your Bibles at the bottom, it's added as a footnote probably. And so it gives the Bible a little bit more validity into which how it was translated. So I was encouraged with that. But you don't know how awesome it was in youth group after that when I showed up and I said, do you think God's perfect? <laughs> Why would he skip a verse? And I freaked everyone out. And so it was good. But back to the story. Uh, so there was one man there who had been an invalid for 30 years. One man, right? This man was paralyzed. He had, uh, 
He had been by the pool. He had been at the pool. We don't know if he'd been there for 38 years, if he was paralyzed for 38 years, if he was born paralyzed and had been there for 38 years. We just don't know. But this one man represents something so beneath the surface that it's not even funny. It's actually amazing. The Bible said that the pool had five overhangs, right? Five colonnades that provided shade. These five, these five colonnades were thought to represent the five books of the law. Think about this. The five books of the law were the sick, the lame, and the disabled were able to rest. Now, the law can point out our sin, but it can't deal with it. The law can make us aware of our sin, but can't take it away. It makes us aware of our sickness, but can't heal it. it. Makes us aware of our disabilities, but can't cure them. And sometimes, without Jesus, there's no way out of our sickness. And so this is a literal representation of what's going on. Now, do I think that it's an allegory of, oh, this sounds really good, so I'm going to make it happen? No, I believe that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning and the end, and he knew that this one man's situation was perfect to teach you and I a lesson 2,000 years ago, or later. The man waiting for 38 years is the same amount of years that the Israelites waited at the footstep of the promised land. They had traveled for two, but waited to get in for 38. And so could it be that Jesus, in his all-knowing, all-powerful being, is using this one man, the Bible says it was one man, using his situation to teach us something. So again, this dirty place with this man who is paralyzed, broken, at the end of his rope, and in comes Jesus. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he had said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. It says that Jesus knew this man. And again, there are hundreds of people that Jesus had to walk past, that Jesus had to kind of even maybe step over to get to this one man. And I wouldn't be surprised if this one man was probably in the worst condition out of everybody at this pool. 38 years to be paralyzed in one place is a long, long time. It can get pretty bad. And at first, if we're not careful, this seems like a really dumb question, right? Do you want to be healed? No, I like it here. Do you want to be healed? No, I love the smell. You get used to it after a while. Of course he wants to be healed. But when we remind ourselves of who Jesus is talking to, this question becomes relevant to both you and I. Something that we need to ask ourselves every single day. Do you want to be healed? See, again, verse 4 says, I didn't say it, but I'll go back and say it. It was a tradition that when an angel of the Lord would stir up the waters, the first one into the water would be healed. Right? And so you have hundreds of lame, disabled, paralyzed people fighting to be the first one in the water when the waters are stirred. And so you probably don't like each other, right? Because this guy is just as capable of being healed as you are if he gets in first. So I'm going to be doing everything that I can to get into this pool first. 
all of these people are waiting for their healings. And the, the amazing thing about this is that Jesus walks up to this man. He doesn't flag him down. He doesn't say, I heard you're a great teacher. He doesn't say, you've performed miracles before. He's just sitting there, and Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be healed? He wasn't even asking for it. Jesus doesn't give him a, a well, there's a few steps that you've got to take in order for this to happen. He doesn't say, well, your belief has healed you. He heals him. He says, in other versions, he says, do you want to be made whole? And that's an amazing question. Do you want to be made whole? So why is Jesus asking this? Why this question? Why not just heal him, walk away, and be fine? Well, there's a problem if this man gets healed. Again, 38 years of being catered to. 38 years. Has anyone been in church for 38 years? I know some have, you just want to raise your hand. 38 years of being catered to. That means when, when you're paralyzed, you don't work. When you're paralyzed, people give you food. Obviously, this man has survived for 38 years, and so he's been taken care of by somebody. Whether it's a kind-hearted person that just ended up loving him and brings him a piece of bread every day, or whatever it is. But 38 years is a long time, so he's used to handouts. He's used for other, he's used to other people taking care of him, for other people doing the work, for other people worrying about providing him or for him. The problem with being healed is if he is capable, he's responsible. If he's capable to work, if he can get up and Jesus heals him, there is no longer an excuse to be a spectator. Jesus is asking him, do you really want to be made whole? Because if you are, you can't sit around anymore. There will be a responsibility to work. There will be a responsibility to provide. 38 years of depending on people, and in an instant, this man is going to have to provide for himself. If he's healed, he has to hold his own, and there's no longer an excuse to be a spectator. The funny thing is the creator of the universe has picked this man out of hundreds of people to come up and comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And all this man can do is talk about his capabilities, of what he can't do, of what he's not capable of, of why nobody's helping him. And you know what? Uh, I listened to some, some sermons on this, right? There are some pastors like, just rip this guy. They're like, I hate this guy. Everyone at the pool probably hated this guy. Like when Jesus healed him, they probably all clapped like, get him out of here. Right? But there's only nine times in the, in the New Testament where it says that, it says that Jesus' guts, the word that they use refers to guts, like his inner being was so moved with compassion for somebody. And this is one of the times that when Jesus walks up to him, he felt compassion within his, it says his bowels. That's how much he was loving on this person. And I think about it, this person bugs me too. Constantly being given a handout, constantly taken care of, receives a healing after 38 years of wanting something more. Right? Completely lost hope. And in eight words, this man, Jesus, turns his life around. He says, get up, take your bed, and walk. 
And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, I don't know if, about you guys, but if it was me, and this man healed my paralysis after 38 years, the first thing I'm going to do is praise this man. Who are you? What have you done? Why can I walk now? What happened? This guy's so focused on his problem still that Jesus has enough time to slip away. Again, immediately this man is healed. And if you guys noticed, like, in the centurion where Jesus says, hey, your, your child is healed, go now, right? And the centurion comes back and says, so when was he healed? Oh, around 1 o'clock. Okay, well, that's exactly when Jesus spoke. And, and John uses these words, like, immediately to show the power of, of God's word. It makes it very apparent that Jesus' words have power. Eight words, in the Bible, or eight words from his mouth, get up, take your bed, and walk. And this man's whole world, again, is turned upside down. But there's, so, so obviously this man's healed. And it's almost like Jesus saying, he's saying, get up, take your bed and walk. What he's saying is, okay, go. Here's your new beginning. Here's your new start. This is what you wanted, right? This is what you were asking for. Now it's gone. Now go. And I have a question for us. What if God took away every reason to be a spectator in this church? What if God took away every excuse to not be idle and stand on the side anymore? What would that look like for us? What if he went to us individually and said, okay, you are capable. I've taken care of everything that might be in the way. Now get up and go. How would we react? What if God relieved you of every excuse not to go? What would that look like for you? What would that look like for us? What if he was good enough to take us from incapable to capable? How would we react? I mean, our reaction is worship, right? Have you guys heard that? That our worship is the reaction to what God is doing in our lives and how good he is. Again, this man, after 38 years, gets up, walks away, and leaves. Right. Was this like some just random healing that Jesus said, ah, it's perm, so I'm going to get up, I'm going to go heal somebody, and then, you know, we'll go have lunch. That's not what happens. John ends verse 9 with something that, I don't know, I kind of get ticked off about or just kind of irritated with. But all these things happen, right? And if it would have just been the end of the story, it would have been that they all lived happily ever after. Jesus went on his way, the man was healed, and it was good. But he ends verse 9 with, now that day was the Sabbath. It's like, dang it. It's always the Sabbath, right? And we get this image in our head that like Jesus one day looks at his sundown. Dang it, I thought it was Tuesday, right? Like he didn't do this on accident, right? Jesus knew that he was going to this pool to meet this man on a day where his nation is celebrating blessing those less fortunate. He was going to pick the worst case scenario and he knew that it was the Sabbath. Right? And what's the Sabbath? It's the day that we are supposed to rest. Right? It's one day a week that they pick to rest in God. Jesus came not to disrupt the law, not to change the law, but he came to fulfill it. And when we're able to rest in Jesus, what he's saying is, I'm that eternal Sabbath that you're looking for. I'm not just a once a week you get to rest and not worry about anything, but I've came to fulfill the law, and your rest should be in me that eternal Sabbath. 
Right? And we get this, again, we get this picture that it's Jesus versus the Pharisees and that he's trying to avoid them and, and, uh, and you know, but maybe he is ruffling a, a couple of feathers. Uh, Philip has been saying this verse over and over to us again uh, this month. It's been a while, but he says it's uh, Proverbs 14.4. And it says this, it says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Right? So if you want a clean manger, you, or manger, you want a clean house, you don't want things to get dirty, don't let the, don't let the ox in. But the ox are what is going to do the work. The ox are the animal that are going to bring crops, that are going to produce an abundance of crops. So here's the deal. Jesus asked the man, do you want to be whole? Do you want things to change? We all do. We all want things to get better. I mean... In our church, it's evident that we, we, we had people come up and say, hey, I'm ready to change. We're ready to be used. We're ready to be doing something. And I love what Jesus does later here in, in chapter 14. But what's going to happen, guys, is if we want things to change, we can't do the same things. Does that make sense? Right? The, the dictionary has a word for that, and it's called insanity. Doing different things, expecting, or doing the same things, expecting a different result. And so something has to change. So what if God took away every reason to have an excuse? Verse 10 says this. It says, so the Jews said to the men who had been healed, it is a Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Again, he's pointing the finger to other places. The man that healed me, dang it, darn that guy. I'm in trouble. See, the Sabbath was like the most holy law, part of the law that you can keep. You didn't mess with the Sabbath, right? They were constantly looking out for people messing up on the Sabbath. So this man, he was carrying his mat. That's why he got caught. Like the, the laws of the Sabbath, the, the principles of the Sabbath are great. They're a gift from God. They show us how God wanted us to live. But what the religious leaders of the day did, they put all these methods and all these loopholes around them. So if this man would have just flung his mat on his back, he would have been okay. Because if you're wearing something, it's part of your clothing, you're not carrying it, and you're fine. There's tons of examples of getting around the law, getting around what God had put in place to observe. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, back then, they used to use vinegar for a toothache, right? But you couldn't do any medical work on the Sabbath. So if you had a toothache and you had vinegar, you couldn't just pour the vinegar in your mouth to help your toothache. But if you had a piece of bread and you soaked it in vinegar and then you ate the bread and the vinegar just happened to get on your tooth, well, then you were eating, so it's okay. Check this out. You couldn't go a 1,000 yards from your home, right? Well, then they say, well, what's a home, Right? Well, a home isn't where you eat, where you sleep, where you have your things. So, couldn't go a thousand yards from your home. That was what God's law said. But, if you drop some things off earlier in the week at another house, 999 yards away from your house, you went there, had a meal, well, you've just established a second home. So now, you can go a thousand yards from that place. And literally, you can travel around the world on the Sabbath if you wanted to, if you're a good planner. God's laws were surrounded with loopholes, ways to get around them, 
ways to look okay, but to do what we want. Right? And that's really what they were saying is, well, I'm going to do my will, but I'm going to make sure that when I'm doing my will, it looks like I'm following his. It looks like I'm holy, but really I'm doing what I want. See, the law was given to us so that we can see how we were supposed to live. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, it says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who, is intently, who looks intently at his, his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, preserves or perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. He calls the law a mirror. Timothy Keller says this. He says, if you look into a mirror and you see that you are very, very, very dirty, that's fine. But you can't wash your face with the mirror. The law couldn't make us whole again. The law couldn't make us clean. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish on the cross. Verse 12 says, it says, they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Again, we see the selfishness of this man, his immaturity, his spiritual immaturity. I can't tell you in reading this message and reading this part of scripture how much I see myself in this man. I am this man. How many times are we or have we been guilty of receiving a blessing from God, something that we were waiting for for so long, getting it and walking away? He was given a gift and doesn't even know who the giver was. It's like my son Noah, right? When it's not a stranger, but someone comes up to him and says, would you like a piece of candy? The only thing happening in my son's brain is candy, 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 right? And he gets that candy, and what does he do? He takes off to go enjoy his candy. And what do I say? Well, did you get one for dad? No, I say, I say, go say thank you. Go say thank you. That's the right thing to do. And we as parents understand that, right? Go say thank you. Because he's blessed you with something. If we want things to change, we have to change, right? If we want things to be different, if we want God to use us in new and exciting ways, we cannot continue to do the same things. We cannot continue to have the the same mindsets. Maybe we need to start saying thank you a little bit more. Sometimes we look at a situation and say, oh, now they have lights. Now they have curtains. What else is going to happen? What if we said thank you? Thank you, God, for what you're doing right now. Thank you, God, for the people that have come to this place to know you. For the five people that have been baptized this month or last month. Thank you. I mean, what if we just had this gratitude? If we stopped and kissed the feet of the man who's blessing us. Kissed the feet of the God that's providing for us. This is the real reason why I think Jesus went to the pool that day. 
It says, afterward, in verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. It's the real reason Jesus got up. It's the real reason Jesus approached this man and said, do you want to be healed? He was looking to heal him spiritually. He had found a man who had completely lost hope, who was completely self-centered, who was worried about his, what he was not capable of and who was constantly depending on others. Jesus came to heal this man spiritually. And have you guys, did you guys catch that part? Go and sin no more? It's impossible. Who's ever tried it? All right? And I remember when I was younger, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to sin today. Dang it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's impossible. Something that only Jesus was capable of. I don't think he was asking him to be perfect. Again, what is sin? Sin is anything that you and I put in front of God's will for our lives. Sin is anything that we put and we make a higher priority than God. Anything. Our pride. Our fears. Our worries. Our selfishness. And Jesus sees, he, he, he goes and finds this man. Right? It wasn't enough to just walk up to him, heal him randomly, and say, hey, dude, you're better. You're paralyzed. Now get up and go. Could have left it at that. But later on, he finds him in the temple. So he was looking for him. He was seeking this man. And he says, look, you're better. That thing, that excuse that you had, that problem that you had, it's gone. And so stop being selfish. Stop putting other things in front of me. Stop putting your will in front of my will for your life. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, this is what he says. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to consider that, consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. See, guys, the getting up and walking was the easy part. It was completely what the man was focused on, but that was the easy part for Jesus. I think when he asked him, do you want to be made whole? I don't even know if he was talking about his physical condition. But the guy's like, yeah, yeah, help me into the pool. He's staring healing in the face. Every answer to every question, every problem he'd ever had is right there in his face. And again, he's focused on himself. He's a selfish man. He's just like me. But Jesus seeks after him. And he says, yeah, the healing was the easy part. The healing's done. But what I really want is I want to be, I want you to be in my will. I want you to die to yourself, and I want you to start living for me.
on days where I tend to put my will before God's, it's harder. It's difficult. For those of you that don't know, I went through a little bit of a medical scare about a month ago. And I can't tell you how selfish I was. I can't tell you how worried I was about me. My thoughts weren't about my family. They weren't about my boys. They weren't about you guys. They weren't about the kids that I minister to. But it was poor me sitting in a hospital bed by myself. Crying. Scared. And thank God that everything came out okay. It's his grace and his mercy that, I mean, it's not every day you get checked head from toe and you come out okay. But to have doctors come in and say, dude, we don't know what's wrong with you. So we're going to have a cancer specialist come in tomorrow and check you out. So let's take some blood and we'll give you the answer in two days. It was scary. And I was on the phone with my dad. And uh, he said, you need to stop being selfish. And I just like, my first reaction is, what do you mean? Don't you know what I've been through? Don't you know what I'm going through now? Don't you know how scared I am? But I realized I was. I was more worried about what would happen to me, how I would end up, what I would have to endure and go through. And I didn't think about what my wife was going through. I didn't think about the kids who are at winter camp. While I was in a hospital bed, I just didn't think about those things. And like I said, this man bugs me because I am this man. Some days less than others. And I realize that if I am going to be an example to a kid or to a high school kid or a college kid or, or anybody, and I'm saying that, man, I need to completely trust in the, what God's plan is for my life, then I have to change things to back that up. And when I do that, God is going to use me. God is going to be able to know that I trust him no matter what. For that week, I got to sit by myself, idle. No responsibilities. Nobody calling me, say, hey, Joe, can you set up this curtain? Or can you make sure this is planned? Or do you have your message ready? None of that. And at first, it was kind of nice. But after a while, I got this hunger to just want to serve. I got this hunger to just say, who can I bless? And what God was doing, he was slowly turning my eyes away from me and what he was willing to do and what he was ready to do. And so I'm going to end us with this question here. Uh -huh. Hold on one sec. Jesus says in that last verse, he says, or worse things may happen, right? He says, or worse things may happen. It's like, what is that? Well, are you asking me perfect? And if I'm not perfect, what's going to happen to me? What are the worst things? I think it's two things. I think the worst things that Jesus is talking about is living a life lacking the, his presence in our life and not experiencing him, right? Because he says that, the Bible says that Jesus came and came to give us life more abundantly. And so to not have that, to, to, to lose that for the sake of putting our will first, that is the worst thing. And I think the ultimate worst thing is hell, right? Hell is a place where we are completely departed from God. We are completely separated from God. I've heard it said like this, that hell 
is the ultimate expression of a man's free will when it's not put in Christ. Crazy. When a man is left to do whatever he's wanted to do. For me, some days it's selfishness. Sometimes it's fear. But I ask us as a group, what would God do if we were selfless? What would we be capable of if we allowed God to disrupt our little bubble? If we said, God, I'm not just going to attend on a Sunday mornings, but I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. I'm going to live out your will for my life. So if that means I go to Vietnam, then I go to Vietnam. God is looking for a group of people who want to change and saying, what do I need to change in me so that I can better look like you? And guys, I don't know of any better challenge from a group of people that stood holding hands together saying, we're ready. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. So it's great that we're ready. It's great that we're willing to sign up for these ministries and go to these events. But what God is really asking is, look at your life. Get rid of what you need to get rid of. And it's not that he can't use us until we do that because he's God and he has grace and he'll do whatever he wants. But if we are in a position to say, God, we love you, we thank you, and we want your will before ours, individually and as a group, what can God do with that? And that's the question that we are left with here today. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what we can accomplish. And it's not about getting to a certain place, but it's about blessing those who Jesus wants to bless. It's about reaching those who Jesus wants to reach. And I think that we're going to be in a better place to do that if we can turn away from our selfishness. And again, I'm not, I'm not bagging on everyone here saying, Oh, you guys are all selfish. Get out of here and turn to Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But the moment we stop and we think that we've made it or that we think we're in a good place or good things are going on, we want to try to start changing things and, and make them something that we can handle and something that we can form and shape. But it's not. It's just humbling ourselves and saying, God, you're in control. Do with us what you will. So I leave you guys with that question. Individually and as a group, what would happen if we became completely selfless? What would happen if God took away every excuse? Yes, even that one. If he took away every excuse, how would we be able to serve him? And what would he do with us? Let's pray.